Steve Donahue with another episode of Legacy Podcast, helping you build your legacy. This episode is number 257, and this is an exposition of 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, through chapter 3, verse 3. And uh, there was some great, uh, great information in those verses, and you won't want to miss this. And uh, here you'll learn about the advocate and the sin that we have and the way that we have uh, someone who is advocating for us in heaven through Christ and uh, what a great um, propitiation he is for us. So you'll hear about all that. Uh, if you want to find out some more additional information, go to the show notes, uh, LegacyPodcast.com, episode number 257. Thanks for listening. Well, I hope that those of you who went hunting yesterday had a better go of it than I did. Um, I did not have a lot of success yesterday, and um, I think I know the reason why. I don't remain at it very long. (laughs) Um, And and I was trying to figure out why it is, and I've come to two conclusions as to why I don't remain out there hunting very long. And they both occurred yesterday. And the first one was that I went out yesterday morning, and I got so cold and uncomfortable that after about an hour's time, I said, that's it, I'm going home to eat lunch or eat breakfast. And uh, so certainly I did that. The second one was uh, I went out in the afternoon. And this time I said, I'm going to dress warmer. And I'm going to dress much more comfortably. And so I took a little chair and covered it over with some camo. And I dressed really, really warm. had my knit hat on this time. And I went out there. And I was so comfortable, I fell asleep. (laughs) And a deer could have walked right in front of me. And I would have never known. In fact, uh, Samuel came down later. And he went to the tree stand that was down the field a ways a little bit from us. And uh, he was walking down the hill, and he said he looked over at me. Oh. <laughs> I was all laid out trying to sleep. And so uh, <clears throat> I, uh, I don't remain at it uh, very much or very diligently. And I hope that that is not the way in which we approach our relationship with Christ. I hope that we are not off again, on again, that we are not just uh, dabbling at it. But in fact, the scriptures tell us very specifically that we are to remain in Christ, that we are to abide in Christ, that it is to be our continuous and active action that we are to do in our relationship with him. We are commanded to remain in Christ over and over again in the scriptures. In fact, uh, verses 24 through 27 that we looked at last week in chapter 2 ends with the emphasis on abiding in Christ. And it's where he picks up in uh, verse 28 that we will look at today. And so what I want to do is I want to look at five descriptions of the Christians who abide in Christ. 
Firstly, abiding Christians have confidence at the Lord's return. They have confidence at the Lord's return. You'll see this in verse 28. It says, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Now, the word abide here, uh, by the way, this is... This is the imperative. This is the command to abide. In verses 24 through 27, we see it in participles. That, is, that was not the main command. But here, it's given as the main command. This is what we are to do as Christians. We are to abide in Him. It means persevering in faith in Christ in our salvation. It is not something that happens to us passively. Although we know that the Scriptures tell us that we are preserved by God. But it also tells us that we are to persevere in our faith. It tells us that he keeps us, but he commands us to abide. The scriptures tell us that he chose us before the foundation of the world. And yet the scriptures tell us that we are to choose him. He saves us and sanctifies us, but we are commanded to work out our salvation and to be holy, as we'll see momentarily. And so here we are commanded to abide in Christ. But it gives us one of the reasons why we are to do this or one of the manifestations of this. And that is so that we might have confidence when he returns. The idea, again, is being assured of our faith because we have certain characteristics of genuine Christian faith. The word carries the idea of being outspoken, of having freedom of speech. It is contrasted with the response of those who are not in Christ at his coming. In Romans chapter 3, verse 19, it says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may be guilty before God. Did you know that there is going to be a day in which the atheists that now go around saying there is no God, debating with Christians and arguing here and there, one day their mouth will be stopped when they are in the presence of the Lord. But we as Christians, we will have confidence because we are in him. And so it says we are not to be ashamed. That is that we are abiding in him when he returns. We need not be ashamed, but we will be found faithful. Listen to what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. It says, finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That describes a genuine Christian, the one who loves his appearing. It will be a great day for us. Titus chapter 2 verse 13 says that we are to look for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 3 verse 21 says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And in 1 John chapter 4 verse 7 it says, Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness. In the day of judgment, there will be those who love the appearing of the Lord because for them it will be a fulfillment of all of our hopes and all of our dreams. But there will be others who hate the appearing of the Lord because for them it will be their greatest nightmare and their worst hope. I pray that for us it will be the former and not the latter. And we just celebrated Veterans Day. And one of the sacrifices that the military families typically make is that uh, one in their family is deployed. And very often that means they have to live uh, as a single parent family in many ways. Although they have money coming in provided uh, by the one deployed, um, that person is not there. 
And uh, very often what happens is that there still is that great connection. Let's suppose that the, the man goes off to war and deployed and the wife and children remain at home. And that wife, if she is a good wife, she, she Skypes with him regularly, communes with him and talks with him and writes letters to him and, and is encouraged by him and talks with him. And, and uh, they make all these things possible. Maybe she has a, a picture up on the mantle and she looks at that picture on a regular basis. She, she does what he would do if he were there. And, and uh, she remains faithful to him. And when he returns, she's not ashamed, but she can have confidence. But there are a few soldiers who, when they are deployed, their wife or husband, the one that remains back at home, is not faithful and uh, maybe doesn't communicate with them very much and, and uh, doesn't Skype with them, doesn't write letters and, and uh, ends up uh, entering into an affair with somebody else. And when that soldier comes back, uh, there's no confidence and uh, there is shame. And uh, we, we are told in the scriptures that we who abide in Christ, we who remain in him, can have confidence and not be ashamed because we have been faithful. And uh, we anticipate that for, for us. So what about you? Will you be able to speak with confidence and not be ashamed with the Lord's return because you have been faithful in his absence? Are you abiding in him uh, as though uh, he is away and will return? Secondly, abiding Christians practice righteousness. They practice Righteousness. We see this in verse 29. It says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Now, it's interesting to note that one of the, John's favorite words to use is the word no. We've already looked at it over and over again uh, up to this point, And he continues in the rest of his letter talking about the knowledge that is necessary for us to have. And he uses that here. He says one of the things that Christians know is that God is righteous. That is a fundamental fact that we have to know. That God is right. That he is pure. That he is good. That there is absolutely no darkness in him at all. He communicates this in many ways. We say that he is light. And yet if we walk in fellowship with him and say that we walk in fellowship or we walk in darkness... It's not true because why? He is righteous. And so over and over again, this is repeated idea. If you want to know what the standard is for righteousness, you look to Christ. You look to God. He is the fulfillment of righteousness. We know that he is righteous. But it goes on here. It says, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. In other words, the idea is, is that if we are in him, if we are children of God, if we are born of God, that we too will practice righteousness. That's one of the evidences of us being saved. You see, our salvation is not by works, but we will work when we are saved. It's whether or not, uh, you know, one comes before the other. And certainly our salvation comes first, and then we practice righteousness. First John chapter 3, verse 10 says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. That's pretty clear. Nor is he who does not love his brother. It would be a reasonable thing that a child would seek to resemble his father and so practice Righteousness. John is arguing from the effect, that is, righteous behavior, to the cause, being born of God. Young boys very often like to emulate their fathers. They like to be like their fathers in many ways. There's even a song written about this. Some of you probably know the song Watching You. It was co-written and recorded by the American country music artist uh, Rodney Atkins. 
And the song was inspired by his son, Elijah, who was at school singing one of the um, the less appealing songs of Rodney Adkins and came home and teacher sent a note home saying your son is distracting the rest of the, uh, the school because he's singing the song. And so uh, he had to instruct his child not to sing that song because it was not the best one to be singing in school. And so he ended up writing this song in response to it. And the song uh, gives two examples of son learning from his father. In the first verse, the father and the son are in a car together driving through town. The son is eating a happy meal in the passenger seat. And just as the father slams on the brakes at a red light, causing the boy to spill his food all over himself and say a bad word. And the father asks where his son had learned to swear. And the boy then responds with, I've been watching you, dad. Ain't that cool? I'm your buckaroo. I want to be like you. And then the second verse is the father heads out to the barn and begins to pray, Lord, help me help my stupid self. Still later at bedtime, the boy kneels beside his bed to pray as well with his father watching. And upon hearing the boy's prayer, the father asks, where'd you learn to pray like that? To which the boy again responds by saying that he's been watching his father. The father then responds by hugging his son and and, uh, stating his pride in the boy growing up. And so it's just a natural thing for boys to want to be like their dads. Now, when they get to be teenagers, <laughs> um, the last thing they want to be is look, be like their dad. <laughs> I still try to tell them that I'm still pretty cool, but they don't believe it. <laughs> and uh, so, that, you know, they don't want to be like with me now. But um, when, they're, when they're younger, uh, they, they want to be like their dad. Now, this can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing. It's a good thing when we set an example, of course, but it's a bad thing when we set a bad example, and we see both of those here in this song that is described. With God, the good news is that we have the perfect standard. We have the perfect example that is set for us. And so we, as his children, when we look to that model, we have the perfect standard. Well, that's a, bad, that's a good thing, but it's also a bad thing because we can't possibly meet up to that standard. There's no way that even in all of our practice, if we were to have perfect practice and practice and practice and practice, we would not be able to walk in the righteousness of God. Very often, our best efforts at practicing the righteousness of God falls woefully short. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6 says, But we all like an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. That's the reality. Even our, our best attempt falls so short of the righteousness of God. This is because our nature is corrupt. And unrighteous because without the new birth, we resemble our father, Adam, after the fall. Just the other night, Mary uh, was having some challenges going to sleep. And um, uh, she was. we have a rule when you go to sleep, you're supposed to have your head on your pillow, your eyes closed, and not talk. She was out of her bed talking. And, you know, so she was, she was being disobedient. So I went in there to spank her. And um, uh, she was telling me. I can't change. I said, what do you mean you can't change? She goes, it's Adam and Eve's fault. (laughs) Well, she knows that part true, right? She knows that we have a nature that is bent towards doing evil. And that's, that's why we can't possibly live up to the righteous standard of God. There still is within us that remnant that continues to try to fight with the Holy Spirit that is within us to try to change us and to convert us. And so even in our best attempt at being righteous, it falls so short. The beautiful thing about Christ is that our fellowship at him, our fellowship in him, our abiding in him enables him to take that feeble attempt that we do at being righteous 
and wash it clean and make it right and then perfect it so that when it comes before the Father, we are able to stand before him righteous and have confidence and not be ashamed at him at his coming. And then thirdly, abiding Christians can be called children of God. Abiding Christians can be termed or called children of God. We see this in verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Now, it says here that the reason why we are being able to be called the children of God is based upon his love for us. And it describes this love by, it says, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. Now, what does it mean by what manner of love? It means what sort of love, what kind of love, what greatness of love? Well, just real quickly, a couple of things about that. It was a, it was a kind of love. It was a sort of love that took the initiative towards us. The scriptures are very clear that when we were enemies of him, he loved us. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, But God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ loved us. So he took the initiative in relating to us. He took the initiative in building a relationship with us. And uh, that's the kind of love. It also is a sacrificial love. He gave up what was most precious to him. Remember when he was dying on the cross after he had said, It is finished. He says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Why have you forsaken me? In other words, by taking upon himself the sin nature that we all uh, have and he bore for us, it says that the Lord actually was separated for a time from the Father. He had had intimate communication with the Father and that, that relationship within the Godhead was perfect and pure. But then when he took upon himself the sin nature that man has, uh, he sacrificed that union. But also he sacrificed what was most important in sacrificing his own life for us. That's the kind of love that he showed for us. And also it is a continuous love. It is a love that does not give up. In fact, the scriptures tell us that he does not stop loving us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so that's the kind of love that he demonstrates towards us that enables us to be called the children of God. We're born into the family through the new birth. And so we are given a new name, and our new name is Christian. It is a foreign family. It says not because um, the world does not know us because it did not know him. In other words, being a family of God, being a part of the family of God is, makes us foreigners. We're not comfortable in this world. We are aliens. It reminds me of one of the songs I used to sing when I was first a Christian by David Meese. It says, we are aliens in a strange land. We are so far from our homeland. And that's the reality of it. We are so far from our homeland. We are aliens in Christ. Now, how do we become children of God? The scriptures are clear in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And in John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Now, there is a mistaken trend in our culture to claim that everyone is a child of God. It even goes so far sometimes to go beyond that. I, I saw a bumper sticker the other day. And on the bumper sticker, you know, you can, you can learn everybody's theology from bumper, bumper sticker, can't you? I mean, there's just everything out there. And I saw this bumper sticker, and on it was a picture on the left side of the bumper sticker of all these various animals that we eat. And through each of them is the, the little circle with a line through it, you know, saying, you know, don't. Like Ghostbusters, you know, the little sign that said no. 
And then on the other side is uh, all these vegetables. And on the middle, the wording says, I don't eat God's children. www.goveg. So obviously this person's a, a vegetarian. They believe that the animals are God's children. Well, they're created by God, yes. <laughs> but they're not God's children. And you've probably even heard the argument before. Well, we're all God's children. That's not true either. In fact, if you look back in Genesis, it says that Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. But then when they had a child after they had sinned and they had fallen from, from that standard. And they had a child that says that that child was born in the image of Adam. So how do we become children of God? We're born into this world as children of men. But we become children of God through faith. And so we, uh, out of his love for us, are able to be called children of God. Galatians chapter 4 verse 6 says, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. How remarkable is this? That we, through the new birth and the adoption, are able to be called the children of God with all the rights and the privileges of the sons of the great sovereign of the universe. Now, just out of curiosity, I looked up uh, what some of the benefits of being in the royal family of England are. And uh, they are pretty incredible. Uh, you know, uh, Prince William and Kate, they're all over the news for everything they do. If they, you know, decide to go on vacation to Ireland, it's published all over the news, right? They're, you know. <clears throat> but there, there's some great benefits to being a part of royalty. And uh, when, um, when their mother passed away, Diana, uh, she, was, uh, she left them, I think, a $51 million, uh, or no, it was, I don't remember how much it was, but they get $15 million a year of trust fund, basically, from that. And, uh, you know, William still serves as a helicopter pilot or something like that, makes like $61,000 a year, kind of as a service he gives to, uh, gives to, um, to different charities. And, uh, but they have all this money coming in that's incredible, and they get some of that from their father's estate. And, um, but, you know, even if we were to inherit um, far more than that in this world, it would be nothing compared to the inheritance that we receive as being children of God. In fact, I don't have time to go into all the details, but just real quickly, what will it, what will it be that we inherit as being children of God? Do you know the Bible tells us that we will inherit the earth? And not just the earth now that we exist in now. It will be a new heavens and a new earth. And it will be an earth that is transformed into uh, far more beautiful, far more luxurious, designed to be uh, sustainable for all the world, for all eternity. It's going to be incredible. And it says that we will be heirs of the earth, heirs of the whole world. Now, how much is your estate now? 100 acres, 10 acres, 5 acres, 3 acres? How about an estate that spans the whole globe? <laughs> Won't that be incredible? But that's not all. It says that we will also have an eternal body without the troubles of this life. Now, some of you know I've been having some heart issues. And the 20th, I'm going in to discuss what kind of medication to have. And I, I just I can't get around. My head just can't get around that I'm old enough to have to be on medicine the rest of my life. 
And I just, you know, I've always considered myself really healthy and, you know, it's just, it's a humbling experience to do that. But every day when I wake up and my knee pops and my, my, uh, my calf doesn't work right. And, you know, I'm reminded that these bodies, they fail. And that's just, that's just part of it. They, they get older and, you know, they just, they don't work like they used to work. Um, and I look forward to that day when we will be in a glorified body that we have inherited from the father. And will be like that of Christ. And it will be perfect. Now, you know, I don't know what age will resemble. Uh, you know, I, I, I was kind of much, pretty much a stud at like 22. Maybe, maybe I'll be 22 years old again or something. I'm not, I'm not sure. My wife's laughing because she knows me. I was 22. I was, <laughs> I was no stud. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I don't know what age it will be that we will be in our glorified body. But it will be, it will be incredible. No more pain, no more suffering, no more hardship, and we'll be perfect in that regard with our bodies. But also it says that we will be in paradise. It will be, a, it will be like the, the best way of understanding. It will be an existence like in the Garden of Eden, only without the possibility of sin. How about that? I mean, that would just be, that would be magnificent. It will be in the presence of God. That, that's that's beyond, what we can, beyond what we can understand. And, um, and that, that brings us to the next point, and that is that we will, Christians abiding in Christ, will be glorified. We will be glorified. We see this in verse 2. It says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And so let's break down what it's talking about here. First of all, it says that it's, he's speaking here about children of God. That's, that's who will be able to experience this reality, those who are abiding in Christ. And what does it say that we will have happened to us? It says that we will be made like Christ. We will be made like him. Now, of course, we will not be made like him to his degree, but of his kind. Now, what does that mean? It means that we could never amount to the same brightness of his holiness. Never amount to his brightness of just as, as we have different illumines today. You can you know, buy a flashlight that says, you know, 22 illumines or 5 illumines or whatever it is. And it's the brightness that is available from that flash. There, there will be a level of brightness that we will attain to in our glorification. But it will be paled compared to the brightness and the glory of God that is revealed to us. And so we will be bright in the sense that we are like him in that regard, but it will never be to the degree of his brightness. And notice when this will occur. It doesn't say now that we experience this, but it says then. It says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. So this is something that is future state. It is not something that is now. Now, why is it not now? Well, because I don't believe that in our state today, in our minds, in, in the way in which we understand things today, that we could quite comprehend what we'll be like. That's why we're given just vague pictures. We're given just a, 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 a dim glimpse of what it's going to be like in our glorification. In fact, in Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, it says, you cannot see my face. This is God speaking to Moses. You cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. 
That's the holiness of God. We cannot come before the holiness of God until we are made perfect, until we are made complete. And so he cannot reveal himself to us right now in its fullness. We, we couldn't. We would die in his holiness. But also it says in verse 30 or verse 23 that Moses was able to see his backside. And the backside of God was described as so glorious with so much character that it was sufficient. The idea is that the front side face to face is too bright to look upon because he is so holy. We cannot know now because our minds cannot comprehend what it would be like. First Corinthians chapter 10 or chapter 2 verse 9 says this. But as it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. We, our minds can't get around it. it. It's too much for us. And then notice what it says also. It says that we shall see him as he is. And because we shall see him as he is, we will be able to understand. It says, I don't believe here what is being taught is that the cause of our transformation is that we are able to see him. But rather, I think that because we are transformed, we are able to see him in his presence. You see, we can't do it now because we're not in our glorified state. We can't do it now because we have not been made holy. We cannot do it now because we have not been glorified. But one day when those things come to pass, we will be able to see him face to face in all of his glory. And how remarkable will that be? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And Philippians chapter 3 verse 21 says, Who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 on the resurrection, a passage that is very often read at, the, uh, at funeral services, uh, there is a description of what it will be like on that day when we are brought into glory and what will take place. In that time, and it says, and we have borne the image of the man of dust. We shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit corruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we should all be changed in the moment in the twinkling of eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption, and this mortal is put on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And so there will be a, a transformation that takes place when we are brought into glory that will be so remarkable. We will we'll put off this tent that the Bible speaks about, our body. We will put that off and we will be clothed in a new body, a glorified body that is, that is like the body that Christ came out of the grave with. It was able to walk through walls and, and was able to eat but never got 
like fat from it. Isn't that going to be awesome? And, you know, won't have the temptations of, of, of doing that. It will just be incredible. And, um, you know, our minds, again, cannot conceive quite how all this is going to take place. Now, in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, we have that great golden chain of salvation. And it says to us that, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Now, what's significant about that is that each of those are listed in the past tense. In other words, just as much as he has called us, just as much as he has sanctified us, just as much as he has justified us, just as much he will also glorify us. But it's spoken in the past tense. To God, it's a done deal. We can have just as much confidence that we will be glorified as that we are saved today. And that we have been saved. And so uh, we are going to be glorified. But fifthly, abiding Christians purify themselves. Purify themselves. We see this in verse 3. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So that is everyone who has this hope. That is those who are Christians, those who are anticipating the glorification, those who are anticipating and remaining in Christ. These are the ones who will purify themselves. And this hope refers to the glorification, the presence of God. And it is that they purify themselves in the the, the verb here indicates, again, a continuous action. The word means to make holy. It is the same word that's used in other places for sanctification. It's the idea of being sanctified, to be set apart, to be holy, to be like Christ in that way. And just as he is pure, just as he is holy, just as he is sanctified, so it says that we will exercise ourselves in holiness, that we will uh, be transformed in that way. Now, this theme is throughout the scriptures. Over and over and over again, we are commanded to be holy as God's people. Leviticus chapter 11. It says, For I am the Lord your God. You therefore shall consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. For I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land to be your God, and you shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Leviticus 19 verse 2 says, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I the Lord your God am holy. Leviticus 20, verse 7 and verse 26, it says, Consecrate yourself, therefore, and be holy, for I am the holy God. And you shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord am holy, and have separated you from the people that you should be mine. Numbers 15, verse 40, And that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. Ephesians 1 verse 4 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. In 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 15 and 16, if you recall these verses, it says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. You see, over and over again in the scriptures, we are commanded to be holy. Well, now wait a second, you tell me. Preacher, don't you say that it is God that works out in us and that he is the one who is making us holy? He is the one who sanctifies us? Yes, indeed. But we also are commanded to make ourselves holy. Well, how do we do that? How do we make ourselves holy when at the same time Christ is making us holy? Well, it's a fight against sin. We need to exercise ourselves in the things that make for spiritual growth. This was Paul's passion in Philippians chapter 3. 
He says, not that I have already obtained or am perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold for that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, he was, he was making every effort to purify himself. It is true that God is sanctifying us. Yes, absolutely. But it also means that we are to sanctify ourselves. Second Corinthians chapter 7 says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and the spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And in First Timothy chapter 5, verse 22, it says, Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. Now, what does it mean to be sanctified? What does it mean to sanctify yourself? Well, I think one of the, the best, most succinct descriptions of sanctification is found in the abstract of principles, which is a good foundational Baptist uh, doctrinal statement. It says, Those who have been regenerated are also sanctified. By God's word and spirit dwelling in them. This sanctification is progressive through the supply of divine strength, which all saints seek to obtain. You see the two things there? God supplies us with the strength, and yet we seek to obtain it. Uh, Pressing after a heavenly life in cordial obedience to all Christ's commands. So what can we conclude about the sanctification? Well, one thing is that the generate nature in believers is by God's word and spirit enabled to develop. Secondly, that it is developed and the believer dies more and more to sin and lives more and more to righteousness. Thirdly, that the work of the sanctification pervades the whole man. Nextly, that it is never perfect in this life. And finally, that genuine progress is made in all that true believers do strive to perfect holiness in the fear of God. You know, the more I practice something, uh, the better I get at it. And I think that's true with all of us, that the more we practice something, the better we get at it. And uh, the more that we practice holiness, the more that we practice sanctifying ourselves, fighting against sin, purifying ourselves, the better we get at it. Will we ever achieve it in this life? No. But that should be our aim. It should be our aim to sanctify ourselves, to purify ourselves. And so if you are a Christian born of God, you will and should be purifying yourself. Does that describe you? Are you growing in holiness over time? And so Christians, uh, abiding Christians have confidence of the Lord's return. Abiding Christians have practiced righteousness. Abiding Christians can be called the children of God. Abiding Christians will be glorified. And abiding Christians purify themselves. So let me conclude as Paul or as uh, John here began. And that is, he says this. And now, little children, abide in him. Let's pray. What happened in the dash between your birth and death? What will you do to change your legacy?
like a plant one day will wither away and to this world we'll have to say goodbye but just like the plant that withers away we will leave many seeds behind if today you lost your life what would you leave behind what would the ones around you see what happened in the dash between your birth and death what will you do to change your legacy If today you lost your life, what would you leave behind? What would the ones around you see? What happened in the dash between your birth and death? What will you do to change your legacy? What will you